when in our music God is glorified should be the point of all of our music and song, shouldn't it be? Thank you, Resonate. Uh, it was a nice transition there from praying for our camps and these leaders that are going out there to a nice camp song. Um, at least maybe in my era, it was a camp song. I don't know if they still sing that. A little, uh, little bit of toe tapping going on there, I'm sure. Well, I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to First John chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 17. If you need a Bible, there are a couple there by the uh, usher stations, and you can grab one of those as well. Let me just read these verses for us, and then we'll uh, look at them in a little more detail. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Well, this morning we're returning to our series of messages in John's letters. We've called it Certainty in Confusing Times. And today we'll look into these words. As we do that, we're going to discover that because of who we are, we need to be very careful what we love. I'm sure you've noticed that life is full of choices. And some are slightly overwhelming because of the many, many choices available to us. Anyone just needs to walk into a, a Walmart or, you know, a shopper's drug mart and go into like the personal hygiene aisle and it's like toothpaste. I thought there was like one variety, like it, maybe one particular flavor and there's like 3,800 uh, on the shelf or, you know, hair product or whatever it is. There's just, you, you, sometimes you stand there and you're just like, oh, what, what scent do I feel like today? I don't know. Um, and it's a little bit overwhelming. But when it comes to faith, we really only have two choices. We either love God or we love the world. And so the question we're posed with today is, what's it going to be? I was faced with this choice when I was probably 20 years old or so. But it's also a choice that I believe we need to make daily. See, there's a number of markers in my life that I kind of put down a stake. Of course, the most significant one for me was when I came to faith in Christ. I was 13 years old. The next year, uh, I was baptized. But then uh, in university, I have to say, the first couple of years, my life really got off the rails. Now, it started kind of in high school, like many, you have this desire to want to fit in. You're hanging out with uh, the, your buddies on all of the different sports teams and all that kind of stuff, and, and I just wanted to be liked, I think. I wanted to be in, and so um, got involved in things that I know that 
looking back on it, that was not a helpful time for me. But really, it continued and got worse in high school, or sorry, in university. Now, kind of the irony of all of that was that I actually never stopped going to church. Um, I felt like I squarely had one foot kind of in the world, so to speak, and one foot clearly in the church. And uh, you can only do that for so long, I discovered. And actually, for me, I remember it well, as if it happened yesterday, but it's many, many years ago. Uh, it was the May long weekend, 1987, and the soccer team that I was playing on, we were going to a tournament in Kelowna, and as soon as I got on the bus, I remembered this is going to be interesting, as you're stepping over all of the coolers filled with a variety of alcoholic beverages. And uh, from there right through to the game, I'm not quite sure how we actually drank so much and played soccer at the same time. I don't think we did very well, obviously. But what's of note is how vividly I remember the drive home. And I remember distinctly, if you've ever driven the highway kind of between Kelowna and Calgary, there's a lot of just two-lane highway. And I just had my head leaning up against the glass and was just experiencing a lot of conviction about the way that I was living my life. And it was in those moments, somewhere probably between, you know, Revelstoke and Golden, where the Spirit of God just spoke to me so clearly. And it was like, Norb, you can continue to live like this, or you can choose life. It had echoes of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 and 20 for me, where Moses is calling, speaking to the Israelites and basically putting before them a choice. And he says, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, And hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The choice could not have been more stark. The choice could not have been more clear. I could either choose death or I could choose life. And as we look to these verses in 1 John, I believe that John is again quite simply laying out two ways for us to live. And so the first, I just want to organize my thoughts around uh, just a couple of headings this morning. And the first is just this, who are you and what do you know? Who are you and what do you know? So John makes six statements here, and there are really two groups of three. And you may have caught this as I read through that text, that there were a reference to children, to fathers, and to young men. Now, it's interesting, there's some difficulty interpreting what, who exactly was John referring to? Who was he talking about? You know, are these three different age groups in the church in the sense that, you know, the children are those new to faith, and then the fathers are those older or more mature uh, Christians, and then the young men is kind of the next generation or those that, that are growing in faith. Now, a side note that although John uses masculine terms here, it does not mean that women are excluded. If you use the New International Translation, it likes to already do a little bit of the interpretation for us. And so instead of saying fathers, it says those who are more mature in the faith. 
And then instead of saying young men, it says those who are young in faith. And so it's a little bit more inclusive language in that sense. And so while an argument could be made for maybe these three stages of maturity, kind of the children, those that are growing, the young men, and then ultimately uh, the fathers, um, I I thought that I, I ended up landing on kind of one overarching group with two subgroups. And so let me explain that. The overarching group, I think, is just children, that, that John is referring to everyone in the church as children, these dear children of his. And then it really refers to this continuum of faith, moving kind of from those who are young to those then who are more mature. And why do I land there? Well, one of the favorite phrases that John uses for speaking to the whole congregation is this phrase, dear children. And it's a fatherly term of endearment. It's reflective of his age, his affection for them, his pastoral heart. Now, I'm not, I don't think, old enough yet. John was probably in his 80s, maybe even into his early 90s when he wrote these words. And so I'm not old enough to use the phrase, maybe when I refer to you as dear children, uh, preferring usually to say friends or loved ones, because that is what you are. But we've seen this phrase already once in chapter 2 and verse 1, and I commented on it then. And John is going to use it eight more times throughout 1 John, including here in verse 12. And when he uses this phrase, dear children, he's really, I think, referring to kind of to everyone in the church. But what's really important is not so much maybe these different age groups, but it's what John wants them to know. And he wants all the believers to know, first of all, But quite simply, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. Verse 12. Just a simple, profound, basic, and yet important truth. Your sins have been forgiven. Now we've been saying that John's major purpose in writing this letter was to give his readers assurance to help them know what in fact they could be certain about. His goal was not to increase their doubt, but in fact to strengthen their assurance that they could have certainty in confusing times. And so here John starts out by reminding them of the reality of forgiveness. And friends, isn't that a great starting point for us as well? That if we are in Christ, that we can know deep down in our hearts that we are forgiven. Do you need to just hear that today? That you are forgiven. And John says, this isn't anything that we've done. It's on account of his name. On account of his name. His name refers, of course, to the person and work of Jesus. And throughout the New Testament, we have references to the name of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, as you may recall, was having a hard time grasping the significance of Mary's pregnancy. And he was thinking that he might just quietly slip out the back door and that would be kind of the end of it. But an angel appeared to him in a dream and explained that the baby that Mary was carrying was, in fact, conceived from the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 21, she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. 
because he will save his people from their sins. And then in the Acts of the Apostles, this reference to the name of Jesus continues. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter has just finished preaching this incredible sermon. And the, the people were cut to the heart and they're like, so what do we do now? And he's like, well, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see this again in Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 4, and verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Friends, hear these words again. If you are in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. And the tense that John uses here conveys the idea that something has in fact happened in the past, but it continues to have this present significance. Theologians call this justification by faith. That by being made right with God through faith in Jesus. And this is what the Apostle Paul was writing about in Romans 5.1 when he said, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, there it is, since we have been justified through faith, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because Jesus was this once and for all sacrifice for sins, we have, in fact, been forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future. Now, we have to, we have to avail ourselves of that. We have to trust Jesus for that. But that doesn't change the fact that, that our sins are forgiven. Earlier in uh, chapter 2, at the end of verse uh, 2, he said, He is the atoning sacrifice, speaking to Jesus, of Jesus again, and not, or sorry, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died so that our sins could be forgiven. There's a word for this. Amazing, right? We sing of amazing grace for good reason. Because it's not anything we've earned, it's unmerited, but it's offered to us as a gift that we receive. And before we think, well, then great, I'll just keep on sinning because my sins are already forgiven. I'm not sure I was thinking about that in my, my late teens, but it might have been. Paul was also anticipating that, so he writes then in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Seems like maybe a logical conclusion. But the answer, of course, is a resounding no. That we demonstrate that we understand forgiveness, that we understand love and grace by the way that we live our lives. And John also wants believers to know in verse 14 then that not only are their sins forgiven, that they know the Father, that they have a relationship with the Father, that he is Abba Father, Daddy, which opens up the reality of so many spiritual blessings, that he is good and that he knows what's best for us as our Father and we trust him. And once we've been adopted as God's children, he will not disown you. The relationship is secure. 
But what happens when we sin, and we've talked a lot about this already in the message uh, based on chapter uh, 1, verses 8, and through two verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. But what happens is that that fellowship with God the Father is broken. Now there's, now there's something that's come between you and God. And until it's dealt with, until it comes through confession, right, there's this proverbial elephant in the room. God knows it. And we often feel the weight of that sin. And so we come to him in forgiveness, asking, uh, come to him in confession and forgiveness. And so, dear children, there I said it, know this today, that without a shadow of a doubt, your sins are forgiven. And God is your father. And John also then addresses the fathers twice with the same kind of because clause both times in verse 13. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, B, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And so here John is writing to the mature and still maturing believer. These are people who knew Jesus from the beginning and they're continuing to deepen their knowledge of who they are in Christ. They understand fully that they're forgiven, that they're accepted, that they're adopted. And they know that Jesus is God. He was there at the very beginning of time and now they hold fast to the knowledge that Jesus is nothing less than God. And look at what he says about the young men then. The second half of verse 13 says, because you have overcome the evil one. And then at the end of verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. And so these believers, John says, have overcome the evil one. They're victors over Satan. But don't miss the why. Why have they overcome? This little phrase right in the middle, because the word of God lives in you. The word of God lives in you. Friends, this isn't rocket science. This isn't complicated. This isn't some magic formula. But the reason that they have overcome is because they are in the word and the word is in them. And the key to growing and maturing is to be in the word. This isn't just a a rushed, quick read of a couple verses in the morning and we're, we're done. But when we combine it with silence and solitude through prayer and scripture reading, it becomes a time of learning, of absorbing, of meditating, of reflecting, asking the spirit to bring the word to life. It's what the psalmist referred to in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. How can a young person, how can a young man stay on the path of purity? How can a young woman stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands, the psalmist says. And then in verse 11, sorry, verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. This is why we talk about spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. Just a constant effort, this long obedience in the same direction. 
We give ourselves to that. I'll just say one other point of application on this, um, kind of these stages maybe of where people are at in their spiritual journey. And, and I think it's to those that recognizing that there are always somebody that's a little further along the road than you are. And that there are some who are more mature. There are some who could be spiritual fathers and mothers. And they should, in fact, disciple the younger ones, those who are newer in the faith. And so if you're a young person here today, one of my encouragement to you is, is find a mentor. Find somebody that you can look up to. Somebody that you look at their life and the way that they walk with Jesus and say, you know, I, I need to learn from that person. That's what I need to do. But it's also one of the reasons I think that, that as a church, we, we value intergenerational ministry, recognizing sometimes you're older and you come to faith in Christ and you still need to, to grow and mature. But oftentimes, in, even in our church, there's people that have been followers of Jesus for years longer than I've been alive. They should know a thing or two. And I would benefit from conversation with them and understanding that. And I, I see this every week played out at men's prayer that we have, you know, older people like a Bill Caulfield or a Bob Montgomery, and we have newer believers who are just like, Help, like, let's talk about this. What does this mean? And how do I live this out? And there's this beautiful diversity when we have those who are more mature pouring into those that are young in the faith. But at the end of the day, John says this, that no matter who you are and what you know to be true about God, There's a warning here. Verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. And that is a warning to every one of us, no matter where we are on this spiritual journey. Now, basically, John is saying, hey, all of this is true about you, and there's something to watch out for, because no matter where you're at on the spiritual journey, no matter how mature you are, temptations will come. You can expect it, so be ready for it and be alert. And if you're going to love God, he says, we cannot also love the world. That these two loves are mutually exclusive, now, we, we saw something similar already in this letter when, when John contrasted walking in the light with walking in the darkness. It's just incompatible. Now, there are a few different meanings of the word, the word world when he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Um, and John is not talking here then about, you know, this created planet Earth that we get to enjoy, nor is he talking about the humans on that Earth, because probably one of the most familiar verses, even if we don't know much about the Bible, we've seen the signs held up at sporting events with John 3.16, right? For God so loved, who? The world. That he gave his only son, that who would ever believe in him would have eternal life. And so if God so loved the world, why does he then say, do not love the world? Well, because he mean, has a different meaning for the word world here. He's talking about a system, a, a worldview that describes humanity's rebellion against God. The world is opposed to God. And here John writes, do not love the world. Now you could take that to actually say hate the world. 
That sounds strong, and I think it is, and he intends it to be so. Because you can't love a system and a worldview that stands in defiant opposition to him. This is what James says in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so the point for us is choose your friends wisely. We can't love God and love the world. Because what the world stands for is in opposition to God. Maybe we think that's a little too radical, but therein I think lies the danger. We tend to water down a message like this. John doesn't. He's deadly serious about it. Look at verse 15. He goes on to say, in fact, if anyone loves the world, he puts it in a different perspective. He says, love for the Father then is not in them. Right? So it's the same idea that as followers of Jesus, of course, we are in the world, but what not? Of the world. And for trying to define more of what he means by this word world, he uses then three statements to describe it. He says, first of all, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. These are desires and cravings. Now, Physical appetites are in and of themselves not wrong. They're not evil. It's when they become controlled by our own self-indulgence that they become a problem. See, that's when we enter into the world of addictions. And so one of the muscles that we need to practice as followers of Jesus is learning to say no. And how do we do that? What's the spiritual practice? You've heard me say this, and Adam said this, and others have said this. How do we learn to say no? What's the practice? Come on, this is an interactive time. Don't let me hang. Fasting, right? That's how we do it. We say no, and we learn that we're not to be controlled by the fleshly desires and cravings that we say have. And then he says, the lust of the eyes. See, the, what, what does the world say? It says, you know, I see it. I want it. I love it. The whole advertising industry is premised on this truth. That if they can just plant that little seed of covetousness, really make you want something, if we just have it then. And then the pride of life. Or the pride of one's possessions. The New Living Translation puts pride in our achievements and possessions. It's when we brag about what we have and what we've done. We base all of who we are on our careers and our achievements and somehow, in some way, these things even become idols in and of themselves. And friends, this is just the invitation. Let's just be more self-aware of how quickly And subtly, we can just be drawn in to the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Because the bottom line is that our affections are set either on this world that John describes or on God and his kingdom. 
And we have an enemy that is subtle and deceptive, and he sets before us things that may look very attractive, but in the end, they're empty, but they're set as a trap for us. And so we come to this final word in verse 17. The world and its desires that he just described pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. And so ultimately, what the world offers doesn't satisfy and it doesn't last. And so every day we need to make a choice about how we will live, about what we will love. And John makes it very clear about which choice ultimately leads to eternity, which leads to life. And for each of us, it starts with that one fundamental decision. And so I leave you with this. What's it going to be? Are we going to live in order to get and do whatever we want? Or will we live lives in obedience to God's will and follow him? It's a choice Joshua gave to the Israelites in Joshua chapter 24. He had laid out to the Israelites how God had led them. And he says in verse 14, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And then he says this, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. You've got a choice. Follow the idols and gods of the world or follow the true God. And he makes it clear where he stands, right? But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And may God give us all that we need to make that declaration, knowing that we can't do it on our own strength but we need his help. Friends, I think it's fitting for a variety of reasons that we're going to gather around the Lord's table. I'm going to invite the, uh, the worship team to come just as I give you uh, a little bit of introduction and some instructions and then I'll pray. But in a sense, by taking communion, we ought to reflect. Uh, in fact, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he says that we ought to examine ourselves. And I think today I want you to just think along those lines, like who or what do I really love? You know, what are some of the idols in my life? Where have I subtly given in to, uh, you know, serving the world instead of serving the Lord? And maybe today by taking communion, you once again put a stake in the ground and you say, no, today I will choose life. Today, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now I'm going to invite you. We're going to be singing a couple of songs. You can sing along this with, the, with the worship team. You can just quietly reflect. But we're going to invite you to come forward again. We've done this the last couple of times. And so each section has a row of tables. So just let the first row and then the second row come. Come up by rows. Move to your right. 
and then come around the front, pick up your elements and take those elements back to your sit chair and hold on to them. Um, and so if you're coming down the center aisle from this section, just stay off. Uh, it'll be to your left so that the people in this section can kind of make their way back up to their chairs as well. But take these elements and just hold on to them. And I just pray that you would reflect on, on this. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you today? Maybe you're a little bit like the 20-year-old that I was, thinking that, man, I can't live this way and this way at the same time. I can't love God and love the world at the same time. I got some tough choices to make. And know that his grace is in fact amazing that his love for you is deep, that your sins are forgiven. Know that. Declare that today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for just your word and the challenge that it presents to us. It kind of hits us hard because we know that we have an enemy. The word says very clearly that prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And the moment that we let our guards down, we become vulnerable. And I pray, Father, that through the strength of your spirit, through your amazing grace, that we'd be people who stand knowing that we have Overcome that we are, in fact, victors. And there's no weapon that's ever been fashioned or formed against us. And so we come with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, because we've hidden your Word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. And so, Lord, as we sing these songs and as we gather these elements. I pray, Father, that you would just, through your spirit, speak to each one here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.